Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Novel Dialogue, podcast sponsored by the Society for Novel Studies and produced in partnership with Public Books, an online magazine of arts, ideas, and scholarship. I'm Rebecca McWilliams-Oyola-Ballard, one of the hosts you'll be hearing from during the sixth season of the podcast. Novel Dialogue brings together critics and novelists to talk about how novels work and how we work in relation to novels, how we read, write, translate, and remember them. Today, we're lucky to have P. Jelly Clark in conversation with Andre Carrington. Jelly, who in his other life as an academic is known as Dexter Gabriel and is an assistant professor of history at the University of Connecticut, is something of a titan in the field of speculative fiction. He's won the Locus and Nebula Awards in three different categories, short story, novella, and novel, the latter two for Ring Shout and A Master of Chen. And as a sidebar, I think we need a term for this achievement, something like the EGOT, but for genre writing versus showbiz. So I'll be, I'll be brewing on that as we speak. His fiction has also been nominated for and or won the Hugo, British Fantasy, World Fantasy, Mythopoetic, Shirley Jackson, and Sturgeon Awards, among many others. And I'll stop listing accolades now and simply say that his work is incredibly engrossing, his speculative world is richly detailed, and his prose not only brilliant, but really engaging to read. Today he's going to be in conversation with Andre Carrington, who is an associate professor of English and director of the designated emphasis in speculative fiction and cultures of science at the University of California, Riverside. He's the author of Speculative Blackness, The Future of Race and Science Fiction, and numerous articles and book chapters on blackness in popular culture, comics, fandom, and queer studies. So, welcome, Jelly and Andre. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. And Andre, I'll turn it over to you. Hey. Thanks so much, um, Jelly. It's a pleasure to meet you virtually. Um, we've interacted on social media and stuff, and uh, I want to thank you for writing uh, thoughtfully about my work, and thank you for what your work has done to enrich you know, my understanding of why it's so valuable to have talented, you know, broad-ranging thinkers doing speculative fiction. No, thank you very much. It's great to meet you as well, uh, more than liking or forwarding or commenting on something <laughs> on Twitter, oh, and pardon me, on X, uh, more than simply commenting on things like that, that we actually get to meet. And your book was a great read um, as a person who loves Star Trek, loved Buffy, you were hitting uh, and yes, loved Harry Potter before all of the incidents. You you were hitting a lot of things there for me, the fan fiction and everything else. So it was it was a it's great to review your book. Um, I still use it as my one accolade as saying that I'm an infrequent reviewer. Strange Horizons is the only thing I've ever reviewed. <laughs> That's infrequent. That is that is an irregular <laughs> schedule. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I want to get to um first and maybe most broadly. What makes it possible for you to do the creative work you do? What makes it possible? Um, you know, having uh, an imagination, I suppose, that keeps going, uh, which I have to thank, you know, my mother for, my father for, for my mother would take me to the library when I was a kid, uh, allow my sister and I to check out as many books as we want and take me like twice a week. And this was when the libraries would have interesting things in the basement, like they'd be showing the black and white movie Them or, or the giant ants or something, or the day the earth sits still. So 
I would see the library as not only a place to read, but also a place to, you know, engage. Uh, my father uh, introduced me to, I don't know how many Boris Karloff movies and, you know, Vincent Price films and all kinds of weird uh, fiction, just as my mom introduced me to Trek and Twilight Zone. And so I always say I, I have to owe it to them for, you know, keeping that, uh, keeping, keeping that idea of the fantastic, that it's not simply something for kids, that it's something that adults can enjoy. And so it was just always, you know, it's long been a part of um, my life. And it's, I think it helps me now able to create. Oh, that's so fabulous. I was thinking a lot reading and rereading some of your work in the past few weeks about um how just how wonderful and also scary um the the presence of of the supernatural especially of the monsters of the threats and also of like the means to fight them the means to like achieve a balance with you know forces that do harm um how exciting that stuff is and it occurred to me as you talked about your background as you know a person with a an active imagination um that some of that you know it comes from your parents and it comes from you know having access to black and white stuff um yeah. and to me i think as exciting as that stuff is right now today there's like so much horror i love that people are like rediscovering and connecting to their spiritual practices in the black community but it occurs to me and i'll bet this is something Maybe it's conscious, maybe it, it's incidental, that a lot of that has to do with um, the presence of our ancestors in our everyday life, right? The presence of people who came before us in what we do yeah. today. Um, am I right to see that as a pattern in your writing that our ancestors, people who came before us, are just so present in these characters' lives as, as something about the way you move through the world? Yeah, in in many ways, it's, it's it's funny when you when we speak about ideas of ancestors. I think about when I still had them, right? People who are now ancestors, yeah. like my grandmother, who's you know passed on, and how she would tell me stories. So you know, um, I was born in the United States. My parents are from the Caribbean, uh, from Trinidad, and I was sent back, uh, which is a thing immigrant people do, or they used to do a right. lot. They send you back um, mostly to, so they could get their lives together, yeah. right? Their young parents. It's great. You have childcare and the grandparents who are in the Caribbean. And also I had asthma when I was younger and they thought warmer climate, help them out, get out of Queens. Uh, and so my early formative years was living in an Afro-Caribbean, but also South Asian Caribbean communities where my grandmother was a master storyteller, much like my mother. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it was when, the, when you know, the dogs are barking at night and my grandmother's closing up. So why are you closing everything? Well, the witches are out. Oh, the witches. Okay. The witches are out, right? Or, you know, if I pick a mango, don't eat that mango. To tr you'll make the tree angry. Or, you know, if I go to sleep, uh, turn around, you're sleeping like the dead. And so it was just all of these everyday bits of the way that the supernatural and the mundane was just part of my regular life. That was just a known thing. And then I had South Asian, often Hindu neighbors who, you know, I got invited over for festivals. I watched a lot of Hindu television before I even knew the word Bollywood. And so I had Hindu cosmologies around me. I had all these Afro-Caribbean ideas. And so all of this kind of melded together. Then I came to the United States and I lived for a while in New York. But then we moved down south and I got a whole new 
lot of aunties, Southern aunties and everyone else who gave me so much folklore and background of, you know, Southern folklore. And in many ways, it's both people who, you know, it's these, it's, it's like I consider this this ancestral knowledge that has been passed down and passed down through these folklores. And it it's run through me, I think, from the Caribbean to here in the United States and the American South. And all of that has been really influential. When you were thinking of, you know, a protagonist, thinking of a hero, and, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, for example, Black God's Drums is the one that I finished most recently. Um, do you think of a character like Creeper uh, sort of trying to build them up and make them able to take on the challenge that's going to be in for them? Or do you kind of start with the, okay, well, what if this presence in this historical moment is causing trouble for Black folks? Or, you know, what if this crisis arises and let's see how it plays out and then sort of dream up a character who might be a good guide to it? How, how does that play out for you? Yeah, great question. And shout out to me going to Bayou Classic uh, every Thanksgiving in New Orleans to give me that <laughs> Nolan's background to do this. But yeah, a lot of it, I think much more like what you were saying in the second half more, I tend to, like, I, I remember how Creeper was drawn up. So when I first started that world, that world was actually supposed to be about Anne-Marie, the uh, Trinidadian ship captain. And I wanted it to be set where she's like a Sinbad almost, where she's just traveling in her airship and just having all these interactions at these different ports. And then at some point, I decided I just want to do it. Well, instead of the air, what if I focus on one locale? And I remember I just started writing and Creeper just arrived. Yeah. As I was writing, is this young figure looking out from these giant walls, these levee walls, looking out, these damn walls, looking out at New Orleans. And then it became a matter of, okay, if this happens, how's she going to react? What is it? What, you know, if she's put in this situation, what's going to happen? And that kind of became how the story became told, right? As I started thinking of her, the story started being wrapped around her. Like, like where would, like, I thought, okay, she's got this information. Where would she go? What kind of people would she know? And I was like, of course she's going to go to a bordella in New yeah. Orleans, right? Of course that's where the information is going to be. Of course, who's going to be the people who have the most information? Of course she's somehow going to know some nuns based on the, real, you know, historical uh, uh, sisterhood in, in New Orleans of free women of color. You know, the gods are present, spirits are present, sometimes for good, sometimes for ill, but they're not quite a, a deus ex machina. They don't, they, they sometimes are, but I feel like in a very, a very like traditional sense that at a certain point, they're just going to have to have, you know, like the, in the classical Greek context, they're going to have to lower whatever apparatus with the sun god on it is going to come in and do something. And then our characters will have to deal. And we as mortals, right, as the audience are going to have to figure out, oh, man, how do we feel about this? Um, and I feel like that is happening in Black God's Drums. It's happening in um, the the Master of Jin novel mm -hmm. and those stories in that um, these characters fight with <laughs> deities. Yeah all the time sometimes there is a plan right of like here's what the deity wants and they have will and here's how things are supposed to go and people will really they'll try to bargain with them they'll try to get what they want out of them they will try to you know resist and sometimes succeed and i find that really dynamic right it's it's not yeah. moralizing but it but instead it's really it's it's not moralizing but at the same time it's kind of educational right it, it tells them right. like, oh well why 
why morally do we decide this is what's right and this is not? Yeah, yeah, that, that's it. Like a lot of these characters are dealing with these larger forces, you know, like in Black God's drums. There, there are gods and goddesses walking around. Creeper has to live with one. So what does it mean to live with that? And this comes from me talking to colleagues or friends that practice Ifa, practice Vidal, practice Santeria. And so, and talking to them about, you know, I can't drink right now because that will, you know, this yeah. is my path and that will get the Arisha of the Spirit angry. And so I thought about what's it like doing that, but then also having your will, your desire, like, I want this thing, but yeah, here's the God is like, I want you to do something else, right? And yeah, it's just, and I, and I like, I always like the idea of the reluctant hero, right? You can go in and you can have the hero who knows exactly what they're going to do and they are straight and narrow, but I always like the heroes like, that's not what I really want to do. Yeah. I have my own plans and I know this thing called fate or gods or whatever pushing me this way, but my own. We believe in a good and evil. We believe that there's a hero, there's a, an antagonist worth fighting against in the story. Man, the ways that we come to that are so different, yeah, right? right. And how, how we take up, you know, the problem solving that we have to do is so different. Um, does, does that question of like, you know, a different, different senses of right and wrong, different senses of like, you know, evil, but not inherently evil or like heroic, but not predisposed to like a heroic yeah. destiny. How do you, how do you decide what to emphasize when you're, when you're putting conflicts between yeah. like capital G good and capital Right. So much of this, I uh, like what you were talking about. So much of this, I think, is dealing with that philosophy of free will, right? Um, whether it, whatever the hero's journey is or what have you, at some point, the hero heroine has to have free will. And this is going to intersect. And they're going to have to say, I want to walk this path or I don't. I was just, I love stories where the heroes are like, I've blazed a whole different path. And none of you thought I was going to do this, but I've, I've just completely done something different. And all the big players have to rearrange the board, right? Because they were like, you know, because you think about it, maybe they were pushing everyone like a pawn. And now like suddenly the pawn has struck back. And it was like, no, this is how we're going to do things now. And so, you know, so for instance, in, in Ring Shout, this is, this is uh, kind of Maurice's thing where the aunties, right, and shout out to, you know, uh, Tony Morrison and Madeline Langle, who, you know, so I took a wrinkle of time and a bit of, yeah. a bit of Tony Morrison and I, boom, care with those aunties. Uh, you know, they have their, the foxes, they have their own goals, right? The Butcher Clyde and the others have their own goals for Maurice, right? And she has to make this choice in the end, but in the end, it's her choice to make, right? And she's tempted and she has to, and, you know, I kind of leave at the end where she has to realize she has to have her own path separate from whether they want to be this warrior fighting against evil or the dark side wants her to come over them, she has to figure out her own, right? And so I, I, I think, again, that comes back to that notion of free will where I think, and I think that's part of any kind of faith tradition or cosmology where human beings are trying to understand how they exist in the midst of all these larger forces and at what point, uh, no matter how much faith they have, are they, are they able to exercise their own free will? I find it very fascinating that you can place in the same story um, conflicting supernatural forces and stuff and conflicting believers, right? Mm -hmm. But in a world that also has nations in it and also has racism and colonialism. Um, can you say a bit about 
why that's important to keep those worldly problems in place yeah just replacing them with the supernatural no it's a good question yeah the the hell the vampires are stand-ins for <laughs> yeah i didn't i definitely didn't want to do that and so i mean part of it you know is how the masters in the world came along i always tell people is somewhere between me and grad school reading edward saeed's orientalism and as an adjunct showing Ponte Corvo's um, uh, The Battle of Algiers, I started thinking about the power of colonialism, the power of the Maxim gun, right? The conqueror of Africa, as they called it, this weapon that's literally given early on so that, uh, you know, British colonialists can inspire, as they say, psychic terror in the natives, right? To just uh, to be able to have this weapon to just mow down people. And I, I would read about uh, people in Southern Africa going out to fight some Germans or whoever who had arrived. And before that, they were fairly co-equal. They had rifles, they could, you know, they could fight back. But here comes this this weapon that, as one person said, he just heard bap, 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 and he looked around him and there was no one left, just him. Like what that must mean psychologically. As I'm thinking of that, you know, I think whenever you're in a marginalized group, you always try to do some alternate, like, man, how would how could we have changed that? Like, what yeah. would undo that, right? What would undo these stories I hear? And I was like, what would undo the Maxim gun? Magic, <laughs> right? <laughs> Let, let's make magic undo, undo in the industrial world as we think of it, right? But at the same time, I don't want to, thinking of Said, I don't want to fully go into this Orientalist decadence and primitivism and all this. So what if at the same time, as there, the magic also has technological components. So it has its own industrialization, you know, through steampunk and so forth. And so, you know, it was me trying to balance those two ideas. You, you often see that push and pull there. One thing I really appreciated about Master of Jin was, um, and this is like, it's, it's hair splitting, but it's really not. Um, it's a thing that I hope everybody notices when they're, trying to figure out, you know, who has the right idea about solving a mystery or, you know, is the, is the hero always right? Or do they have somebody to question? Um, and that was, um, the relationship between Fatima and Hadia. Yeah. Because the minute Hadia showed up, I thought, oh, oh, she's going to be a problem. <laughs> right. <laughs> like she's going to be, is she going to be in distress? Is she going to be undermining our hero? Is she going to like have the secret to crack this whole thing open? Right. And also what's at stake in having somebody there who's going to question your hero's steps or question your detective's theory of the case. Um, when you, do you dream up like a, a character all at once and then kind of throw some of that responsibility to somebody else to question them? Or do you just, in, do you enjoy that dynamic? of having somebody to second guess, having somebody to to turn tone things down when the hero's going a little too far into their own thing. Yeah, no, that's a, and Hadi, it's funny, Hadi has become, I think, to me, like a surprise favorite character of a lot of people. They like, they love Hadi. Um, I think part of it was that people who knew Fatima from just a dead gym in Cairo, yeah. and even her cameo in The Haunting of Tram Car 015, there is this notion of her as, you know, if I described, you know, Fatma is that she's determined, she's driven, she knows what she's about, right? And so, you know, it's the great trope that always works of the the person who's, you know, the the lead detective person and the new and the new guy. 
Yeah. And it's always a bit of the new person trying to be caught up to this person's experience. But I wanted to question that a bit. And I wanted to, who can kind of like check Fatma, right? I wanted somebody to be able to check her once in a while. Somebody who's who's similar to her yet different, right? And And to make her uncomfortable. Yeah. And to show that, okay, give her, you know, you need your heroes to have flaws. They can't be Superman where they're, they're perfect. Right? They need, right. they need flaws. And so I wanted to have someone to give flaws. And I thought Hadi was just this perfect person who is not what people may think in their minds she is. And yeah. it also under, it, it's not what even Fatma thinks she is. Right. When it turns out, she's like, I, I didn't know you were a ninja. Right. <laughs> you know, but like, you know, it's like, yeah, well. You didn't ask. You had this idea. And it's interesting. Hadia kind of came about as I just wanted to have somebody, you know, I wanted to have somebody. I didn't want to have the lone, the lone wolf detector for a whole book. I want to have someone else there who's experiencing these things. I enjoyed doing that with the haunting of Tramcar 015 with Hamed and Unsi. I, I like their dynamics. So I wanted something like that here. And I guess there was a part of me that was a little put off by people who really like Fatma from Adegit in Cairo uh -huh. and would talk about how like they liked her suits, you know, and that she wasn't in a traditional hijab and this meant that she was like empowered. And I was like, I, I wasn't doing all that. I just want to put her yeah. in a suit. Yeah. <laughs> right? You know, y'all taking it a little too far. And too many of these people were not people from the region, but people on the outside of their gazes looking in. And I said, no, I'm not trying to say that at all. Like, um, right. And so I was like, I want somebody then who is religious, who wears hijab, who wants to go uh, pray, and she's more more religious or what have you. She may have more traditional ideas uh, than than Fatma, but she's also this complex person. She's also a person who has more radical, progressive ideas. I thought uh, in in Master of Jinn, and I feel like this is um. This is true to to a point in you know not not as a major note but certainly as a as a minor note as a reference occasionally in ring shout that people's relationships their intimates their partners their sexuality that it is a part of who they are and uh, I didn't read anything really any of these stories Master of Jin has maybe the strongest love story in it but none of them really read as like a romance um, do you think you have a romance in you? If you would write, uh, uh, I don't know, like these sorts of romance. I, I don't know. And I've read some, I've read, I'll, I'll tell you two things. I've read some books with both romance or some intense, intimate sex scenes. And I haven't gone down either of those routes. I tend to kind of skirt around them. And I don't know. And like, I have a friend, he says like, you should, you should just read the romance novels. <laughs> and I have yeah. read one or two because he said it's just good with understanding relationships. And I do wonder, especially, let's say I were to do more in the world of a Dead in Cairo, like, yeah, how did, it's one thing to have the beginning of the relationship. Right. What happens is that relationship matures, right? And so those are things that you have to think about, right? And I think a lot of books, a lot of movies, especially, it's easy to start off with the beginning of the relationships. Oh, that's right. That's the, that's the honeymoon, the early honeymoon phase. We're all getting to know each other back and forth. What happens when it's every day and like, I don't like the way you slept your soup, <laughs> <laughs> those kinds yeah, of things are, yeah. I just got to deal with your parents and I was got to, you know, just the everyday or you know, I'm just tired and I have to see you again. And how do we keep that, man? So those are things I, I think about um, if I were to return to that. But yeah, I've, I've wondered myself, like, 
how far down that road I want to go. And I don't know. We'll see. If you get on that road, it's, it's, you know, what I learn from fan fiction is it's so humbling to be creative because romance writers and romance fans are so good at it. Yeah. Right. They know how to do it and how to make a whole set of expectations about what can happen, what's going to be the hook for someone, what's going to spark their interest, what's going to make them sort of look at a text and say like, oh, it's good, but the politics around the sexuality are not where I want it to be. And what, on the other hand, is going to make them look at a text like that and say like, oh, I love that this kind of relationship is celebrated, is important, yeah. that you really feel for somebody yeah. and their same-sex partner. Like, that's really an achievement. And what I love about, you know, knowing about fanfic and knowing about romance but not being good at them or an adept reader as much um, is seeing how satisfying it is when people are good at it, right? Yeah. That they, if, they're, if they appreciate what's there, that's that's high praise. That feels like the genre that the institution still hasn't sort of legitimized in the sort of genre debates, right? And you're like, right. that, yeah. how, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, completely unprepared, right? And and that is, you know, our loss as people who work at academic institutions. Yeah. Um, I want to maybe maybe wrap up in the neighborhood of um the nine Negro teeth of George Washington, which yeah. is just yeah. just a a pageant. I mean, it's a real it's a big like it it hits and what I especially valued about it was um. It's proof of concept in a way of kind of yeah. of how it, interesting it is to take an interest in history, right? To take our received history and question it and also how enriching it is and also scary it is to realize how much of history is hidden from us, right? That George Washington didn't have wooden teeth. He yeah. had real human beings teeth in his head. And they were teeth that belonged to black people because yeah. our bodies were so disposable in whole and in part in the world he lived in. And just that fact of that being hidden from us by this yeah. fairy tale of wooded teeth, right? right? That's such a dangerous, scary thing. It's scarier than anything actually in the story, right? right. Is that we can spend hundreds of years thinking the one thing is true and the truth is so much scarier. I came across it just randomly uh, looking at some archival work. And it was someone at the George Washington Archives who came across it. Yeah. Uh, shout out to Archivist, right? Who just comes across it and all we know, it's literally a ledger note that George Washington's cousin writes yeah. that he paid this doctor for these nine Negro teeth. And it's in between some cloth, some Chinese cloth that he bought and, uh, and um, fixing uh, the windows in an Alexandria house. And there's something about, just like you were saying, like the scary part, there's something about the banality of that. Like, oh yeah, I just have paid for some nine Negro teeth. And that's it, nothing else. There's no more, it's not spoken above more. There's, there, that's all the archive has found, this one little line. And it just made me think about the gaps in the archives, right? That we see a lot of a lot of the stories this talks about, the silences within the archive, I'm thinking about Truel or others talking about like where the, the archives are not, are, are themselves created and constructed by human beings who have their own agendas. They're not objective, right? And so nobody's going around looking for 
the lives of enslaved people for posterity, at least not at that time. It's going to be a long yeah. time before they do. Only certain people do. And so, you know, it's like, we don't know anything about this. And I think there was a way that when, when I was first thinking of that story, the, uh, the, the, um, the National African American Museum, History Museum had opened up and I went to the opening and they have one there. I think, I think it's with Thomas Jefferson and all the bricks yeah. they represent. And there was a way that all of that was in my head as I was thinking, and I'd known about it already, but somehow seeing that made me think more about these teeth and more about George Washington and what does it say for the figure who is the national figure of our country? They used to celebrate George Washington's birthday, right? This is like, a, it used to be a national event. What does it say to this figure who, as Andre, as you said, it was so symbolic uh, as the father of the country, as the beginning of the Marxism, that we know he owned enslaved people and it's sometimes whitewashed or tried to be ignored, though we need to see historians tell us, right, about Odin Judd and others who run away. What does it mean that he owned enslaved people? And what does it mean that his dentist would purchase these teeth from enslaved, likely from enslaved people for him to use, right? And how much that opens up. That's simply enough to just sit with and wrestle by itself. And so I wanted to explore all that, but I really said, you know, the part I want to get at is who are those nine people? Right. Their names are lost. And I think so much of reading the lives of enslaved people is how much their voices just becomes lost, like, you know, drops in rain, just become lost in the, and you know, you get like a few narratives. Those narratives don't represent everyone. And so often what you have to do as historians is you have to use someone's narrative to piece together how this one enslaved people might've lived because you have nothing on them. And with these, we have nothing, right? right? They're like those, those bricks at the, uh, that they were using at the museum. And so I said, I want to just imagine what each of those lives might've been like, and I'm just going to completely invent them. And, but I'm going to invent them based on actual historical things. I'm going to talk about the slave trade. I'm going to bring up uh, the role of enslaved the runaways, the role of enslaved people in the Revolutionary War fighting on both sides, right? I'm going to talk about what it was. I'm talking about, we know like George Washington's famed cook, right? Who I bring in there. So I wanted to bring all this in here and, you know, to make, to catch, catch people that hook, as you're talking about, I'm just going to get fantastic. Because yeah. after all, this is what historians have to do. You have to be, you have to speculate. Right. You don't have the answers there. You have to speculate on their lives anyway and say this may have been so, but I'm doing literary stuff. I can speculate as much as I want. And so I still have the notes where I remember, I don't know when it struck me, I said, I need this to be like short vignettes. I need to just have short little bios on each one because that's what I'm trying to do, reconstruct lives. And I want to relate it to George Washington where it's like, where it's causing him, you know, trauma to have these things, right? That it's almost like having a cursed object that he's holding these things right. he shouldn't have. People might not realize is that part of that process is fictionalizing the sources that historians yeah. draw on, right? Mm -hmm. That if we know about the historical moment in any detail, which we don't always for enslaved people, um, if we know about like one line in a ledger or we know like, oh, okay, you know, Washington and Jefferson and these folks, they kept farm books, right? Yeah. And that's where the names of our ancestors are recorded. Mm -hmm. That's where the sales and births and deaths might be recorded. That those things are just a little bit of insight. And if you have to make up the rest, right, it's inspiring to go really far with it, yeah. right? And it's also really grounding to say, you know, this isn't entirely speculation, right? 
that there really is a proclamation that says like come on fight for the lawyer yeah if the british if <laughs> yeah. you know yeah. and if black people did it in the hopes of attaining freedom or yeah. you know leaving uh the american colonies on terms that they hoped would be favorable or be reunited with their families um that if they did it well, then maybe non-cannibal ogres and goblins and whatnot, you know? <laughs> and hedge wizards might also be like, right of the law. Exactly, yeah. I just, yeah. I yeah. And I love that mixture of, like, these are what real historical primary sources are like. And these are also what, like, you know, magical spell books and stuff are like. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. That, that you can you can find a kind of richness and, and a quality that's really fanciful from the real stuff as well as the stuff that's yeah yeah and so yeah this is i mean perfect that's exactly what i hope people took from this and you know in back in the day when i I had time to blog before i had twins uh i would often go back after my stories and you know i'm not i'm not i'm not david blaine i'm not gonna not give you the secrets yeah like this is where i got it from I, i want you to go find out like as much as you think like you know the truth is stranger than fiction as much as you thought i was just making things up there's there's reality here in, in in these things, right? Like you said, there's here is uh, Lord Dunmore's proclamation. Um, here is George Washington's cook who did run away, right? Uh, here are all of these different figures that I'm creating, like the time about the slave ship, about each slave had these had a mushroom as a coffin. That's an act, that's an actual line from a slave trader, right? I want people to get all of these things that they that as an enslaved person you could be sold to Barbados and then. You might end up somewhere in New Granada that the slave trade was transnational, did not care about borders. It, it sent people hither and yon back and forth. Now, each season of Novel Dialogue has one signature question that every novelist answers. Um, in this season, inspired by our kind of general exploratory theme of the weird, our question is, what is your weirdest source of writing inspiration? My weirdest source? Wow, that's a good one. I'm trying to think. I mean, I have interesting sources. I have sources that take me down rabbit holes. But I, I, my weirdest source would have to be uh, in in Reach Out. There is the nefarious character Butcher Clyde, right? Who I who is like just just the worst. Um, and when you first meet him, it's in a dream realm almost, and he's singing. And he's singing this song, the Grand Old Duke of York, right? And there's something about nefarious characters like this singing children's stories that's inherently creepy, right? Because why are you singing a children's story? And the source for that, so I was sitting down. Uh, I was in the middle of the story. Uh, I had to look at the twins at that time. We were watching an episode of Peppa Pig. And on Peppa Pig, Danny Dog says, they're doing nursery rhyme. Danny Dog says, I know a rhyme about marching. And everybody has to go outside. And the marching song is the Grand Old Duke of York. He had 10,000 men, a really popular uh, British nursery rhyme. And when I heard that, I was like, that's going into this story. (laughs) And so Danny Dog from Peppa Pig was my weirdest inspiration to make Butcher Clyde just a bit more creepy <laughs> than one would expect. So there you have it. Inspiration can come 
from everywhere. Anyway. I want to close by thanking a Society for Novel Studies for its sponsorship, Public Books for its partnership, and Duke University for its continued support. Hannah Jorgensen is our website manager and transcript editor. Rebecca Otto is our social media manager. And Connor Hibbard is our sound engineer. Check out past and upcoming episodes with Ocean Guang, George Saunders, Jeff Vandermeer, and many more. From all of us at Novel Dialogue, thanks for listening. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.